0: Hello. I sometimes wonder how different my life could have been had I been born a few years later. I was a pleasure seeker in my early twenties, so I suspect that had the rave scene exploded in the early rather than the late eighties, by which time I was a prematurely middle-aged local politician, I might have spent quite a lot of that decade off my head. I also really like games and competition, And when arcade games started appearing in pubs, I spent many an evening splatting space invaders or asteroids. But then there was a gap, I think, between those games and home gaming, facilitated by consoles and then the internet. And that gap meant that I've never been a gamer. And that means, in turn, that I've had to read a fascinating new book about gamification from a position of some ignorance. Yet, while I'm new to... ARGs, NPCs, ARPs, and LARPs. It turns out that the gamification of everyday life is a lot wider, a lot deeper, and a lot more dangerous than what teenagers or nerds do in their bedrooms.
1: This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor.
0: So, I'm delighted to be joined by Adrian Hon, who's the author of You've Been Played How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. Hi, Adrian, how are you?
1: Uh, Doing well, thank you. Great to be here.
0: So, let's start, Adrian, with a question I always start with just to put you at your ease. Why did you decide to write the book? And actually, in answering that, let's hear a bit about you, because what's one of the things that's interesting about the book is your own background.
1: Sure. So my background is that I originally trained as a neuroscientist. I studied neuroscience and experimental psychology, first at Cambridge, then for a short time at UC San Diego in America, and then I started a PhD in neuroscience at Oxford, but actually my first love I think was video games. It's just that getting into the games industry is not very straightforward if you're not a programmer or artist, but I eventually did make it to the games industry and ended up making some normal games, I suppose, but also a lot of unusual educational games or serious games or or games that took place in the real world. And a lot of those would be called gamification, which is where you use ideas from game design for non-game purposes. And I actually don't really love the term gamification (laughs) because it has become associated with products and with services that are manipulative or just badly designed in many ways. So I actually didn't want to write this book for a long time. I'd hoped that gamification would just disappear of its own accord, as a lot of fads do. But actually, in the last few years in particular, it's become much more widespread and has become a much bigger part of people's lives than I'd ever imagined. And so that's why I decided to write the book, to try and bring into focus the full scope of what gamification has become today
0: and it is a fascinating book and it goes incredibly wide i mean this is a book that moves from chapters which look at games as we traditionally understand them to the use of gamification as a kind of device to motivate and surveil workers right through to a you know fascinating account of the use of indulgences in the medieval period and the kind of comparison of that kind of notion of gamifying virtue or access to to heaven and what happened to that. So I, I was pondering, Adrian, what's the best way to approach the book? And, and what I decided to do was to kind of do it slightly in reverse order, which is you end the book with four recommendations. And I, I thought it might be most useful to, to explore the arguments through the prism of those four recommendations, as it were. So if, if you're happy to do that, let's have that have conversation structure in the way. So let's start with the first of the four recommendations at the end of the book. So that is that users must opt in to gamification. So this takes us to the whole question of the compulsory or the involuntary nature of a lot of the gamification of everyday life. And I think it's the workplace in particular that worries you.
1: That's right. So people are probably familiar with gamification as they see it in their Apple Watch, telling them to compete against their friends for badges and for awards, for running more and walking more. But actually, the thing that worries me the most are places where you don't have any choice but to play the game. So increasingly, workplaces like Amazon and Uber and a lot of gig economy companies, but also a lot of you know, quote unquote, you know, high paid white collar jobs now involve gamification in how they motivate and monitor and reward and punish their workers. And so just to be specific, if you are driving for Uber, then you will be offered quests which involve driving, you know, picking up 20, 30, 40 passengers within the next few days. And if you complete the quest, you will earn a bonus of 50 pounds 60 pounds or that sort of thing and you could say well obviously this is a good thing because you're getting a bonus what's wrong with having a bonus but obviously the, the issue here is that all of this also goes towards obfuscating your total compensation so if a large part of your income is from these gamified bonuses which you have no control over which ones you get offered and you don't really have a lot of control over how you can complete them because that depends on how much you know business there is then it's much harder to know how much you're going to get paid at the end of the day and what's interesting with uber and with similar incentives and gamified business models is that they don't actually have to use ideas from game design there's nothing about this where it has to be called a quest. It could just be called a task or an incentive. But these companies have used the words and the aesthetics from video games because, well, people, workers, understand how video games work. They understand you know, the, the uh, graphics and the concepts. And so when they hear about Quest... You think, oh, a quest, that's a good thing to do. I should try and complete a quest. I should try and win an achievement. And so there's this interesting kind of conflation of objectives where I think almost by accident, companies have realized that if you wrap feedback and instructions and orders in the clothing of video game design, then people, for maybe obvious reasons, are more willing to respond rather than to push back.
0: Yeah, and two fascinating things that I got out of your book, Adrian, was on thinking about this spread of gamified kind of ways of of influencing, controlling human behavior, was was firstly that that actually we're probably too frightened, too alarmed about the Chinese social credit score system. That doesn't really seem to have worked. And I think as you say in the book, A lot of people think that China is already run through a system in which every single act is part of some kind of unified national system of social credits, and it turns out that's really not the case. But then, just as you're reassuring me about that, you then tell me something which I had no idea about, which is how ubiquitous a gamified kind of form of discipline and reward in schools have become, which about which I had no idea.
1: Yeah, this was probably the most surprising discovery I made when for searching the book. So there is an app called Class Dojo which is in use apparently in 95% of US schools and it's very popular. In the UK it's been used for several years. And Class Dojo does two things. The first thing is pretty harmless. It is essentially a private social network for teachers, parents and students to, you know, exchange homework and photos and that sort of thing. But the second part is a behavior management system. And the way it works is the teacher gets their phone and they set up a grid essentially to represent students in a class and they can then reward or deduct points from students based on behaviors. So they could, for instance, say, well, plus 20 points for being quiet and behaving well, minus 10 points for being disruptive, minus 20 points for going to the toilet too much, which is something that has happened. And on the one hand, I am sympathetic towards teachers because they have a hard job and maybe they're just looking for a free app that they can use to control the classroom with. But, you know, and actually at the same time, some parents actually quite like it as well. But if you go and talk to the students, if you go and talk to other parents, you'll find that some parents say that their kids are actually just incredibly anxious and almost sort of terrified by the prospect of losing points. And it almost seems as if the entire point of being in a classroom is to amass as many points as possible. There's a quote from one girl who says, I really like class sojo. It's like when you give a dog a treat for good behavior. So it really comes down to the question of, how do we want to motivate and incentivize learning, a love of learning in school? Should it be through an app that gives children points and deducts points every few minutes, or should it be through something else?
0: Yeah, there was one name that didn't appear in your book. I mean, your book is so broad ranging, but you didn't mention Michael Sandel, because actually this is an argument I've heard him develop around a scheme that gave children... I think, rewards, cash rewards for reading books and his worry that that would take away the intrinsic satisfaction of reading a book. But the other thing that you say quite a lot in the book is that the evidence that these things work is often limited. I mean, largely because the people who flog this stuff, who flog these methods, are keen to persuade you. And obviously, most of this stuff's pretty new as well, so there's not that much longitudinal evidence. But you're continuously irritated by the kind of claims that are made on very weak evidence grounds.
1: That's right it's tricky because there's so many different types of gamification it'd be like trying to assess whether television was good for you or not obviously it, you know you'd have to be more specific about what kind of television we're talking about there are studies of gamification and gamified apps of course as we know it it's expensive and it's time consuming to do really good research and so a lot of the studies are funded by the corporations themselves and not that i'm accusing anyone of being biased at the same time you know there are <laughs> there, there are unconscious biases that can creep in when doing research in that that's funded in that way that even the good studies or even the positive studies are not really that impressive and one of the things that i noticed is a lot of gamification interventions are compared not with a realistic alternative but with doing nothing at all so for instance maybe You might be studying a brain training game or a language learning game and the study might find oh wow this is better than doing nothing at all that's probably true but is it better than having a real instructor is it better than going out for a walk is it better than you know doing a crossword and we don't know but a lot of researchers think actually it's probably not better in which case you might as well just do a crossword
0: Right. So that's the first message is that we all need to be a little bit more alert to the way that gamification is seeping into our lives. And we should demand that if it is to do so, that we should be involved in that. We should be asked, we should be aware, and we should be able to ask for evidence. So let's move on to the the second recommendation you have at the end. And actually, because you just mentioned dogs, I'm going to preface this recommendation with a joke which i thought spoke to it a rather dated joke but a joke about two men in a bar and one of them says to the barman kind of a packet of cigarettes and the barman says we don't sell cigarettes and the second guy's got a dog says look that's fine my my dog will get you some cigarettes there's a shop on the corner so the first guy looks in his wallet and He's only got a 50 pound note, so he says to the second guy, only got i I've only got fifty pound. The second guy, that's fine, that's fine, just so the dog pads off with the fifty-pound note between its teeth, and they wait and they wait, and hours pass until closing time, and no sign of the dog. So the dog owner is very upset and they wander around town. And then they come across a wasteland. There's an appalling scene where the dog is there with smashed bottles of vodka around his legs, a packet of Fags discarded, having sex with a very dodgy-looking other dog. So the the dog owner goes over and says to the dog, his dog, he says, My goodness, he says, It's terrible. He says, You've you've never done this before. And the dog turns to him and says, Well, you never gave me 50 quid before. Yeah. And I thought, Adrian, that that joke was relevant to your second recommendation, because your second recommendation is keep rewards and punishments small. And I think the point of the joke, and the point you're wanting to make here, is that is that when rewards are modest. They can be a bit of fun, part of the enjoyment of something. But if they become too big, they start to alter our behaviors. They lead to perverse outcomes.
1: That's right. I I think a lot of traditional gamification is designed around the idea of motivating people's behavior through reward and punishment, so through behaviorism. And that's can be okay. I mean, it is useful to have small rewards and punishments, certainly small rewards as a way of marking progress. The issue is if you have massive rewards, if you were to say, okay, if you lose this amount of weight, or if you walk this many steps, we're going to give you 10,000 pounds. You know, if you pass this exam, we're going to give you a hundred thousand pounds. Then it's pretty clear that that is going to warp people's behavior in potentially bad ways. Certainly it's going to incentivize cheating because people would be willing to take that chance of being punished or caught if the reward is so high. But also it can just encourage people adopting behaviors that maybe aren't in their best interest. So if someone were to tell me, I'll give you a million pounds if you walked, you know, uh, 300 minutes a day, (laughs) I probably shouldn't be walking that much, right? But if I got that amount of money, then maybe I'll give it a go. So that is one of the issues that we see. And I feel like increasingly, our society and economy is geared around these mega prizes and mega rewards and mega punishments. Maybe there's a small chance of getting them, but they do have the result of warping people's behavior. Yeah. And you give lots of examples of
0: people wasting enormous amounts of time but also people losing the joy of the game and this is this is something I want to bring out about the book is that if anyone is listening to this and thinking that, you know even with your background as a game developer Adrian that you, this is all a bit kind of joyless you you love games i mean you you write with great enthusiasm about well designed games so the, your point is in the book is not an anti game point it's an anti
1: bad game exactly point Exactly. No, I I love games. I will continue playing games and I think they're one of the most vibrant and diverse and exciting forms of entertainment out there. You know, if you if you haven't played a lot of games, especially smaller independent games, then you're missing out. At the same time, the the properties, you know, that make video games so interesting, their interactivity, also allow them to change our behavior. In ways that maybe we don't expect. So, as you mentioned, I'm a game designer. I play a lot of games. You would expect me to be more immune, maybe, to um, games, you know, playing games too much, addictive games, even. But no, I still get caught in a cycle where I realize it's 3 a.m. and I play too much of this particular game. So, everything in moderation, I suppose. But the design of games makes it easy for mm. some people to succumb. Yeah, and you you give examples of games that were, were
0: fun and then the, the developers can't resist mm. starting to kind of chuck in more and more rewards and punishments and devices and they, they kind of lose their... They lose their joy, which was really interesting. I did. I do have to say, Adrian, at the end of this book, I kind of much more inclined to, to to dip my toes into the waters of, of gaming. Actually, so it's a funny thing. You know, a book that is a, a warning about gamification actually made me kind of more interested in in gaming. So let's turn to the the third recommendation you've got. Now we've kind of talked about this a bit because we talked about research and the lack of rigor in the research. But you, your third recommendation is don't misrepresent benefits. You actually, I think, link this to a a broader crisis, or sometimes called the crisis of replication. That actually, a lot of psychological experiments, indeed, you know, the whole school of behaviorism, it turns out, has been based upon quite shaky evidence, and that the evidence that is offered for for the impact of gaming is similar. So, one of the points that you make, which was interesting, was that we very often measure the impact of gamified processes. On short-term studies, it may simply be novelty, and I think that's something we can all recognise. You know, you get into something, and you do get into it, you do get obsessed by it. The question is, are you still obsessed by it a month, three months, six months, or a, a year later?
1: Exactly. You know, uh, I think the novelty effect can explain a lot—not all, but a lot of the effects of gamification, especially when it comes to lifestyle gamification, where maybe you decide you're going to buy a Fitbit and try and walk more. whether that's at work where they institute some some new you know leaderboard to try and get you to work more. And you know, I I think people get excited when their employer or someone shows an interest in their work and maybe they, they want to reciprocate and say, hey, I appreciate that. But if the nature of the activity hasn't really changed, if you still pushing papers around an office, but now there's gold stars. I don't think it's really going to have a long-term effect. I don't think most people would expect that. So I think that it again comes back to a question of why we choose to do the things that we do. Obviously, I'm a big fan of scientific research. You know, it's one of the only ways we have of really understanding the world. I used to be a scientist and a researcher. At the same time, I kind of groan internally when I see a new headline saying this game is proven to make you feel better or this you know app is, is going to make you happier. And even if all the researchers have tried as, as well as they can, I don't know whether that should be the sole reason why we're deciding to do something. So to give an example of my own games, we, we don't actually make scientific claims about our games helping people get more fit. We, we make fitness games. But people just decide, oh, I like the idea of a game that is interesting and exciting and is about running. And they can decide whether they think that will be good for them or not. And I think that a lot of gamified solutions resort to this kind of reliance on science or quote-unquote sort of scientific evidence because they're just not very well designed (laughs) and they're not very engaging or exciting because if they were people wouldn't need the evidence they just do them for fun
0: yeah and this is linked it seems to me adrian to another kind of theme in the book i can hear in the kind of background of the arguments you make which is the retreat from complexity, in a sense, that we want simple solutions. We want to believe that, I don't know, the way to deal with the explosion of mental illness is the development of apps that can help people feel happier. That the reason that the response to the growth of obesity is to have an app, rather than saying, well, what is it about society that leads to more people being mentally ill? What is it about society that leads to more people eating too much? So what the gamified argument does is it plays into our desire, doesn't it, for simple solutions to complex problems?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think I saw a council somewhere in the UK that announced proudly it had some new gamified app to incentivize people to walk more instead of driving, uh, walking to the school or walking to the shops. And again, I sort of groaned at that because I thought I don't actually think the solution to getting people to exercise more is just through fitness games or, or gamified apps, you know, like the ones I make. I think if you look at countries where people are more active, some of the answers are pretty obvious. I think that if you have more green spaces, if you have cheaper leisure facilities, if you have more spare time, that sort of thing, if the facilities are more accessible then people are going to take advantage of them. People are probably going to go swimming less if it costs twice as much as it used to. And, you know, I I love the idea that that there should be more fitness games and gamified solutions out there. But actually, the way in which people are going to get fitter is just by incorporating more movement into their lives. And that is not something that an app is going to solve, although it is cheap to do that. And it's nice to pretend that it will. And
0: it's also part of, of individualism, in the sense of it's a part of suggesting that all our problems are really to do with individual motivation. If any people would pull their socks up, or if any people were gamified into wanting to pull their socks up, then you know societal problems would disappear. Let's turn to your final recommendation, which in a sense almost could be the kind of name of the whole book, really, which is work on behalf of users. You know, you you want to say to the community of game developers be ethical in the end don't develop games that are likely to make people's lives more miserable or exploit people or trap people or get people to do things with no kind of intrinsic value but one of the other things you say in the book Adrian is that is that actually you've had to pay a bit of a price for saying this because the world of gamification is a world of people who are quite full of themselves really and they don't really like the idea of anybody coming along and saying there may be problems
1: no i Probably could make a lot more money by doing consultancy or by working for companies that want to use gamification in order to just increase their revenues at whatever cost. You know, I met a game designer at a conference who told me that he had built this rather sophisticated gamification platform as a way to essentially increase sales on gambling apps and to, to sort of get their workers to work more for less money. And <laughs> there's a lot of money in this, obviously, and I think that people a lot of people in this industry get very confused about the signals they're receiving about what they should be doing. So I think pretty much everyone who goes in to become a game designer or even gamification designer goes in not because of the money right They're not there to become rich if you wanted to really just become rich. You probably try and work in finance or consulting or or something like that people go into the games industry to be creative to try and make something that hasn't been made before to put something of themselves into a creative work of art and of course i think everyone's realistic about that you have to go and make money but frequently when you work at any company not even evil companies just really any company then the incentive is to just going to increase revenue and if that becomes the only metric, then from a game design point of view, there's lots of things you can do to keep people more, quote unquote, engaged and to keep spending more because the techniques that you can use in game design are so powerful because they're interactive. So whether that's the gamification of video games, where people, where game designers use loot boxes, so gambling style mechanisms to get children and adults to spend tens of thousands of dollars on just digital trinkets, which they regret afterwards, or kind of a bit more innocently, just games that are endless, you know, and get people to play for thousands of hours. Like myself, you know, I I actually played Farmville for far too long even though I know better. And, you know, the moment I turned it off, I thought that was just a complete waste of time. I don't know why I spent that time at all. And my argument in in that point is that it's not really enough for game designers or designers of any kind to say, well, it's really up to the user. You know, it, if the user wants to go and spend a £100,000 on my gambling style game, then that's up to them. They should have known better, or maybe they really like it. And I think... I just can't actually believe that they really think that. I think the game designers are actually in a place of superior knowledge. You know, they know where the game is going. They have the stats. They know, actually, that not everyone who spends a thousand hours or ten thousand pounds on their game can afford it. But they kind of just don't really want to think about it because that would question, you know, the entire basis of what they're doing with their lives. And it's not always that extreme, you know, sometimes it's just shoddy design. So for example, one of the things which I hate in a lot of fitness apps and exercise apps is this concept of streaks. And you've probably seen this if you use a Peloton or Apple Watch, you know, this is the idea that you get a reward or achievement if you exercise for five days in a row or 10 days in a row or 300 days in a row. And a lot of people don't care about these streaks, but a lot of people do. And so people will go to great lengths to maintain their streak of exercising or exercising more and more every day to the point where they harm themselves, right? And weirdly, this is good for the company because it's better if someone is using the app every day than not. But the end result is that yes, the user uses the app more, maybe the company makes more money, but people end up hurting themselves. And that is not in the best interests of the user i think the game designers know this but they just find it hard to push back so i I try not to be too (laughs) i try not to put too much blame on on designers because i know that you know they're not the people running the company at the same time there are things you can do there are things you can say and there are industries and companies you can choose to be in or not be in
0: yeah and this is where i the final thing i wanted to talk to you about adrian because you know i'm not a gamer and i know that my attitude to gaming is a bit like a famous guinness advert which said i don't like it so i haven't tried it <laughs> so i think that i get that and that it's not unless i was to really kind of immerse myself a bit that i could make this judgement but i suppose i am still a snob i'm going to be honest with sure. you right i still think that that gaming is a bit of a waste of time and that i remember when my sons were massively into fifa <laughs> when they were like 12 or 13 or 14 and i'd say to you, you know when you get your first girlfriend you absolutely will not be boasting to them about what level you know about how good you are at fifa you know and i i that was just a kind of device for saying <laughs> these are these achievements are not achievements you're going to be proud of when you're a grown up <laughs> i remember one of my sons actually just a couple of years ago, teasing me by saying that his current girlfriend was a great gamer and she <laughs> very, very impressed by his aptitude at FIFA. So I was wrong. It took him 10 years to be able to tell me I was wrong, but he very much enjoyed it. So to counter my snobbery, I guess part of this, you know, is Roland Barthes had this distinction he made between the writerly and the readerly. So the readerly author was one who wrote to give pleasure to the reader and to sell books and to be appreciated by the reader, whereas the writerly author was one who wrote because they had to write. They needed to to express themselves. And I, I don't think Bathurst was being particularly elitist, but he was just saying that in a sense, the artistic impulsion is that writerly compulsion, the need to say something, not the need to produce something that other people will like and I guess that's part of my kind of snobbery about games in the end they're not writerly they're readerly they are entertainment devices but moving from your kind of critique of gamification to your love of games Hmm. defend gaming from (laughs) from my snobbery
1: well look I'm also a snob so when I see people spending a lot of time on Candy Crush or on FIFA, you know, these are called time-waster games, actually. People call them time-waster games. Even people who like them call them time-waster games. And I think that sort of gets at the motivation why some people play them, which is not actually that they're edifying. I know some a lot of very smart, very accomplished people who, who love playing, you know, these, these sort of casual games as a way to de-stress and unwind. And so I, I can't blame... I can't actually get that annoyed by these games, which I find a bit derivative and and artistically boring. Because if someone is playing them for half an hour after a stressful day, that's fine. I mean, they might just go and watch a soap opera instead. And I don't think soap operas are the pinnacle of TV, but we can't all be reading War and Peace all day. Having said that, if that was all video games were, that would be a bit disappointing. I think there are some absolutely incredible games that are as good as the best books and TV shows and movies. There's a game called Inside, which is just incredibly unsettling and has a lot to say, actually, about modern society. You know, there are games which are just very pleasingly sophisticated from a mechanical point of view, like Into the Breach or Factorio. And, you know, there are some extremely entertaining but also kind of thought-provoking detective games like uh, Return of the Obra or Papers, Please or Immortality which try and comment on modern society. The fact is that they are quite rare, actually, and you do have to look out for them, I think. But one of the things I find most exciting about games is that it is possible, actually, for almost anyone to download the software, to build a game, and to release it to the world. And so... That's almost better, actually, in terms of accessibility and diversity than books, because while anyone can write a book, it's actually quite difficult to get published right? and and to find an audience. Whereas in games, people seem much more willing to try different things. So it is right, I think, to be a little bit skeptical and a little bit snobbish about a lot of the video games that you'll hear about, because they're not really that good. Honestly, they're entertaining and they're fun. But I don't think they have a huge amount to say about the world. But they are out there. It's just a little bit harder to find them.
0: Well, Adrian, it's testament to your book that it left me feeling simultaneously worried about (laughs) gamification, but actually desiring to become a bit of a, a gamer. So thank you for writing You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. And thank you for joining me on Bridges to the Future. Thank you. For me, an important message from Adrian's book is that resisting the temptation to instrumentalize everything is necessary to live our best life. I'll admit, it's not something I'm very good at. More than once, friends have asked me why I insist on turning everything into a game or a contest. But after reading You've Been Played, I'm going to try harder to read, to run, to practice my guitar, to do good deeds... Just because it's what I choose to do to be the person I want to be. I hope I make progress in living intrinsically. But you know, it would be so much easier if I got a reward. Goodbye.
1: We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the RSA.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.